Well, good morning. I want to wish, wish you a Merry Christmas, too, on behalf of our elders and staff. Uh, we're glad uh, that you're here this morning, and uh, I can't remember the last time uh, we did, um, had Christmas on Sunday morning. I think it was 2005, uh, if I remember correctly. But it's always a great time to come. And one of the things we've done over the years when we've had Christmas is to always celebrate communion because we want to be able to focus on what Jesus came to do and what He did for us on the cross. I never forget that. We do that here at the Bible Chapel often, but we never want to forget uh, the price that, uh, that Jesus paid. In, in communion, we remember, as one person puts it, the wild abandoning love that Jesus has for us. And that was demonstrated, wasn't it? Most vividly at the cross. That the, the, the bright lights of Jesus, when you look at the life of Jesus, the bright lights of Christmas are always shining right on the cross. So yesterday in our Christmas Eve services, we looked at Luke chapter 2 and we went through the Christmas story, and we said that you can find the Christmas story in the New Testament in Luke or Matthew. But this morning, as we prepare for communion, I want us to consider the Christmas story that's found in the Old Testament. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, and we want to consider this passage, this prophecy of Jesus that took place 700 years before Christ was born. Scott has prayed for us, but let's pray again and just ask God to speak to us today and prepare us for communion and get us ready for that, and then we'll end with the Lord's Prayer as well. Father, thank You for our time together today. Thank You for the privilege of looking into Your Word. We thank You that Your Word is living and active. We thank You that as we look at it, we can read a passage that we've read many, many times in that day. That time, it's fresh. That time, it speaks to us in a new way. It speaks to us in a different way. It hits us in a different area of our heart. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that for us today. We thank you for this Christmas day. We thank you for the fact that you sent your son, the incarnation. God became flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And we know, Lord, that you came for a purpose. You came on a mission. And that was to die for our sins on a cross. And as we prepare our hearts to take communion, Lord, never let that mission be far from our minds. Never let that mission be far from our hearts. So, Father, we come today. We have sung together. uh, We have interacted together. And now we want to pray together as your Son, our Savior, taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, Isaiah chapter 53. Again, this prophecy written 700 years before Christmas before Jesus came. And this chapter divides very nicely into four different parts that focus on who Jesus is. The first part is found in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, 
And here we see Christ's humility, the humility of Jesus Christ. Isaiah begins this chapter with a lament in the form of a question. Look at chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed this message of Jesus, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The rhetorical question Isaiah is looking for is not many. Few, when Jesus was on this earth, few would realize that He was actually the Christ, the Messiah. Few would believe His message. Few, think about it, just in that little spot of Israel that He traveled, few would see the great miracles He did. And in the end, many would mistake the power of God in the flesh. They would mistake His work on the cross as what? Total weakness. Look at chapter 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That verse always makes me slow down and just think about it, just meditate on it. Isaiah tells us that the servant of God, Christ, would not come with any human strength, would not come with any royalty. He would grow up like a, like, a, like a tender shoot budding from a tree. And there was nothing majestic about him. There was nothing beautiful about him. There was nothing in his appearance that we would say, there's God in the flesh. No one would recognize him by his appearance as God incarnate. Ravi uh, Zachariah, in his book, Jesus Among Other Gods, tells a story about Billy Graham when he was in Pittsburgh. Billy Graham was doing a crusade here, and he entered a hotel in downtown Pittsburgh, and there was some, he had his teammates with him, and there were some businessmen uh, in the hotel, and they all got on the elevator together. And while they were on the elevator, one of the businessmen said, I hear Billy Graham staying in this hotel. And the other one said, that's him right there. And the startled businessmen men said, what an anticlimax. We would have said the same thing about Jesus. There was nothing in his appearance that would have said, oh, there's the Son of God. Had you been there on that first Christmas, now 2,000 years later, right? We know all about Christmas. We know all about the angels. We know all about the wise men. But on that night, you might have had the same reaction to the birth of Christ. Born to a poor Jewish girl, not yet married to her husband. No surroundings, no pedigree that impressed. It took an angel to convince the shepherds to go see Jesus, and it took a supernatural star to call the wise men to him, no beauty, no majesty, to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. 
Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Again, think about that. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Now we say, well, of course, he went to the cross, the pain of the cross. That's what Isaiah is talking about. Yes, but Isaiah is talking about a lot more than just the pain of the cross. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew 1, verse 18. Matthew writes, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to what? Public disgrace. That's how Jesus grew up. He did not want to expose her to public disgrace, so he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. But the angel came to Joseph and no one else. In a tightly knit Jewish community of the first century, a woman who was engaged to be married and was found to be pregnant was an adulteress. And the penalty, remember, was what? Was stoning. Had Joseph pursued that to the law? And so, Matthew says, he just decided, being a righteous man, this is before the angel appeared, he just decided to to divorce her quietly, just let it go. He wouldn't have her put to death. He was going to let it go until the angel came, told him that this was the Son of God. In his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey says this, that Jesus would have had known this rejection all of his life. Philip Yancey says, nine months of awkward explanation, the lingering scent of scandal. It seems that God arranged the most humiliating circumstances possible for his entrance, as if to avoid any charge of favoritism. I am impressed, Yancey says, that when the Son of God became a human being, He played by the rules, harsh rules. Small towns do not treat kindly young boys who grow up with questionable paternity. And so all of Jesus' life, not just on the cross, He would have been a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, despised and rejected even as a young boy who had questionable Paternity. When God became a man, He humbled Himself from the very beginning all the way to the cross. The first part of Isaiah talks about the humility of Christ. The second part of Isaiah 53 talks about the burden that Christ carried. Look at chapter 53, verse 4. Surely He took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Infirmities in this passage speaks of sickness, but it doesn't refer specifically to physical sickness. What's it refer to? Sickness of the soul. 
sin in our hearts, illness of our heart. And sorrows speaks of the consequences of sin. The penalty of sin is what? Death. So man lives with these illness of soul, sinfulness, and the resulting death because of that. When Jesus was on earth, He healed a lot of people. And we always look at His physical healing, but He healed people. By the way, those people, think about it, Lazarus was healed, raised from the dead, right? But he died again. The people he healed, they died. But that physical healing was for a larger purpose. The physical healing that Jesus gave was a sign to demonstrate the spiritual healing. The physical healing was an anticipation of the eternal healing that Jesus would do when he died for us on the cross. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, the sickness of our soul. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He took the punishment that gave us peace. By his death we have spiritual healing. Verse 6, we, like sheep, we'd gone our own way. We'd gone astray. Each of us had turned to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. On that cross, just think about that as you take communion today. It's mysterious, and we can't even fathom it, but on the cross, God put on Jesus the sins of the world. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Your sin and my sin and the sin of the world was upon his shoulders. He bore our sin in his body on the cross. We like sheep, we'd gone, we'd wandered off the path. We'd gone our own way. We were doing our own things. Like we talked about Monopoly game last night. We play by our own rules, right? But God laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in Isaiah, you have the humility of Christ. You have the burden that he carried. And then verses 7 through 9, you have his obedience. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, he did not open his mouth mouth. 700 years later, Matthew chapter 26, look at verse 62. Matthew 26, verse 62. This is when Jesus was before all the religious leaders. The high priest said to him, I charge you, let me back up one. The high priest stood and said to Jesus, are you going to answer these charges against you? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Look at verse 63. But Jesus, what? Remained silent. Isaiah said he didn't open his mouth. Jesus remained silent. Turn over to Matthew 27. Look at verses 12 through 14. When, the, when he was accused, now he's being accused by the, by, he's before Pilate. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But look at verse 14. 
But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Just like Isaiah said, not one word. He didn't open his arm. Think about it. With one word, with one wisp of his hand, he could have, he could have, he could have scattered those men throughout the room. But the eternal God, think of, think of the power that would have taken the eternal God who could have spoke those men into oblivion, restrained himself, didn't speak a word. God remained silent in the face of false accusations. Jesus didn't die a, a victim falsely accused. He died willingly. He remained silent, all part of the eternal plan for you and me. Look at verse 10 uh, back in Isaiah 53. Yet it was the Lord's will. This is always a hard verse to read, isn't it? Yet it was the Lord's will to what? To crush him. It was the Lord's will to crush his son for us. It was a, to, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord make his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. When Jesus was before Pilate, and when Jesus was before the Sanhedrin, and when Jesus was being put to death, there was one man there, there were many, but one wrote about it who saw it. He was an eyewitness. This man knew all about Isaiah's prophecy, and this man was seeing with his own eyes what was going on. His name was Peter, the apostle, and here's what he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 and 25. And notice how Peter, in these verses, weaves the Isaiah passage together with what he saw with his own eyes. Look at verse 23. Peter writes, now after the cross, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to our sins and live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. Here, Isaiah here, all over this passage, right? Peter said, you were like sheep going astray. And you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, Jesus Christ. So Isaiah, 700 years before, talks about Christ's humility, talks about Christ's burden, talks about Christ's obedience, and then one more, talks about Christ's exaltation. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 and 12. Second part of verse 10, he will see his offspring... So even though he's going to be offered, even though God's going to crush him, he's going to see his offspring, that's us, and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. What, what is Isaiah prophesying about there? The resurrection. Even though he's going to be crushed, he's going to see his offspring, his spiritual offspring, and he's going to prolong his days. And after the suffering of his soul, he's going to see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear 
their iniquities. And then in verse 12, Isaiah is looking at a general who is coming home after a victorious battle, and he says, therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah tells us the Christmas story. For the believer, God has taken our sin and put it on Jesus. He bore our sins and His body on the cross. For the believer, Christ has paid the penalty for sin by His death on the cross. For the believer, Christ has made us right with God. And for the believer, Christ was raised to life again and... So will we be. He's the first fruits of those who have been resurrected, and we will follow him in the resurrection as well. 700 years before Jesus, the Christmas story is told by Isaiah, and that's what we get to celebrate today. The bright lights of Christmas are always shining on the cross. We've looked at Scripture And as we get ready for communion, before Jim comes up and leads us in communion, I ran across a book years ago called Intimate Moments with the Savior by a guy named Ken Geyer. I've read this before. I'd like to read it again today. Geyer looks at Christmas through the eyes of Mary, and then he looks at the cross through the eyes of Mary. First, the birth of Christ. Guy writes this. The births would not be easy, either for mother or the child. For every royal privilege of this son ended at conception. A scream knives through the calm of that silent night. Sweat pours from Mary's contorted face. The involuntary contractions are not enough. Mary has to push with all her strength, almost as if God were refusing to come into the world without her help. Joseph places a garment beneath her, and with a final push and a long sigh, the labor is over. The Messiah has arrived. Elongated head from the constricting journey through the birth canal, mucus in his ears and nostrils, wet and slippery from the amniotic fluid, the son of the Most High, umbilically tied to a lowly Jewish girl. The baby chokes and coughs. Joseph instinctively turns him over and clears his throat, and then he cries. Mary reaches for the shivering baby. She lays him on her chest, and her helpless and his helpless cries subside. A tiny head bobs around the unfamiliar terrain. Mary can feel his heart racing as he gropes to nurse. Deity nursing from a young maiden's breast. Could anything be more puzzling or more profound? The baby finishes in size, the divine word reduced to a few unintelligible sounds, and then for the first time, his eyes fix on his mother's. Deity straining to focus, the light of the world squinting. 
tears of pull, tears pull in her eyes. She touches his tiny hand and hands that once sculpted mountain ranges cling to her finger. She looks up at Joseph, and through a watery veil, their souls touch. He crowds closer, cheek to cheek with his betrothed. Together they stare in awe at the baby, Jesus, whose eyelids begin to close. It's been a long journey. The king is tired. And so with barely a ripple of notice, God stepped into the warm lake of humanity without protocol and without pretension. And now, the cross. As Mary stares at the cross, it blurs in a teary mist. Deep inside, Mary knew that Jesus was a child born to die. In pools of tears swim a few tender memories. His birth in that cold, dark stable in Bethlehem, how he shivered as she held him for the first time so tiny and helpless, how her song lulled him to sleep, and how when she kissed his forehead, he looked so peaceful without a care in the world. The cross comes into focus again. She looks at her son and aches. He is naked. And there's no one to warm him. He is thirsty, and there is no one to wet his lips. He is tired, and there's no one to sing him to sleep. His forehead is wrinkled in agony, and there's no one to kiss it, no one to mop his care-ridden brow. What did my baby ever do to deserve this, she wonders. A mother's love. That's why she's there. A Savior's love. That's why he is. But love never looked like this. Pools of blood beating the dirt beneath the cross, a heavy spike through his feet, ribs protruding against the skin, open wounds bothered by flies, eyes swollen with fever, hair matted from this morning's thorns, hands raised to God on splintered wood, a slumped torso dangling from impaled wrists. Suddenly, Mary realizes he is about his father's business. She was there when he came into the world. She would be there when he left it. She was there when he pushed his way through that dark and constricting birth canal into her arms. She would be there now as he was being pushed through another painful passage, returning to the arms of the Father. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's what this communion's about, isn't it? Remembering that by his wounds, we are healed. Communion is only for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And if you've done that today, you are more than welcome to take communion with us. You need not be a member of our church. We'd love to take communion together as a family of God. If you're not a believer, just let it pass. But today we ask you on this Christmas day to realize what Jesus did for you. And today trust in him as the one who paid the penalty for your sin, as the one who was crushed and pierced for you. Father, as we take communion, we pray that you would prepare our hearts on this Christmas day. Don't let this be just another time we pass the elements. Lord, speak directly to our hearts. Move us to a deeper, 
love for you. Move us to a deeper understanding of the price you paid. Move us to a deeper understanding of how much you love us. And Father, help us always to see the Christmas lights shining on the cross. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.